Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from The Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Mike Haley from Focus on the Family and a parenting program it launched called Resilient Kids is up first. You'll hear him talk about how parents can be equipped to address a number of values-based assets. Then it's Lynn Donovan who for years prayed for her unsaved husband to know the Lord. Seven years before he accepted Christ, she took her prayers to a whole new level. You'll find out how God led her to pray more fervently for her husband. Also coming up, Mark Little, leader with the Urban Cure Ministry, offering biblical insight in addressing what Christians can do in response to the unrest and tension in our country regarding race relations. And on this edition of The Intersection, it's Than Bennett, who works with the American Center for Law and Justice, offering challenging words on how Christians can be devoted to making God famous. Finally, Cynthia Rook T. shares from her research into the issue of hoarding and traces the spiritual roots of this addictive behavior. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Mike Haley, Program Director for Resilient Kids and Raising Highly Capable Kids, affiliated with Focus on the Family, talked with me recently and shared how this program is impacting communities with churches partnering with other organizations in order to provide values-based training for parents. Here now from a recent Meeting House conversation is Mike Haley. The leadership at Focus on the Family knew that they had decades of research and great information on marriage and parenting and child-rearing. And so they knew that there were a number of people in our culture that wouldn't come to us because Focus is a faith-based organization. So what our leadership sought to do was to start Resilient Kids, which is a branch of Focus on the Family. So we are a non-religious educational arm. And what we do is we provide values-based programming that gives the church the opportunity to go out into the community in relevant ways and offer help and assistance. So Raising Highly Capable Kids, which is the program that we're celebrating today, is actually a parenting curriculum where the local church could actually go and offer support and help to parents in the public schools and boys and girls clubs, YMCAs, apartment complexes. And so that's really, it provided a a very, like I said, relevant opportunity for the church to go out into community and reach people that are not coming to our, you know, through our doors or into our four walls. So you have this program called Raising Highly Capable Kids, and it's been launched really in locales all across the country. What sort of feedback are you getting as a result of these efforts? Well, you know, it's incredible feedback that we've gotten. One of the things that we had to do because we were in the public marketplace is we had to go through a third-party evaluation where a third-party outside source had to evaluate the curriculum and they tracked it for a year in three different communities and long story short what they came up with is that raising highly capable kids is 21 percent more effective than the top 200 parenting programs and so we've seen great success we're in 150 communities around the country um, and we're we're in school districts like i said boys and girls clubs ymcas apartment complexes homeless women's shelters i mean anywhere that you have a group of parents that are striving to be better parents, which I believe we all are, um, you know, is where raising highly capable kids can actually be run. And we provide grants. So one of the hallmarks of Resident Kids and Focus on the Family is that we want to go into underserved communities specifically. And so we offer 18 grants a year into these underserved communities, and we give them the curriculum, the training. We give them everything they need for free. 
What would you say would be the highlights or the high points of the curriculum and why it's been so successful? You know, I, it's just amazing because it's built on very strong empirical data. So we partnered with an organization known as the Search Institute. And so in partnership with that organization, they've done decades of research with over 5 million young people. And they've come up with 40 essential building blocks that every child needs to be successful. And so the more of those building blocks, which are called the 40 developmental assets, a child has in his or her life, the less likely they are to engage in high-risk behaviors, the more likely to, they are to engage in positive behaviors, and we're going to see an increase in their grade point average. So it's really kind of a very defined checklist that helps parents really focus what are these assets that are missing in our families, that are missing in the lives of our kids that I can focus on for the next three, six, nine months to strengthen our family. Mike Haley is the program director for Resilient Kids. It's an arm of focus on the family, and you mentioned it goes into communities all across the nation. Now, can these developmental assets and this program actually be integrated into, say, an individual home? Oh, absolutely, and that's where we really highly encourage it to be done. You know, these parents come to a group scenario, but we ask them to actually go back to the home and to assimilate these these assets into the lives of their family. But the really cool thing about raising highly capable kids is it's a 13-week program. So these parents are then able to try it within their own home and then go back to this group of other parents and say, you know what, this really worked in my family, or you know what, this didn't work. And so how did you implement it? So we really help the parents to um, celebrate their victories and discuss the places where they're having a hard time. And so the parents really form a bond and really form a community. You know, you and I are involved in a faith-based community, but when you think about a single mom that's just arrived to this country, she's living in an apartment complex trying to raise three kids, she doesn't know about community. And so one of the beautiful things that's come out of this program is this group of parents that bonds together, that works towards parenting together, really does form a cohesive group that continues to support one another um, as they go through the 13 weeks. Mike Haley here on The Intersection. You can find out more at Resilient Kids. Spell resilient with a Z instead of an S, and kids with a Z at the end, resilientkids.com. Well, next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Lynn Donovan, founder and president of Three Keys Ministries and founder of the online ministry Spiritually Unequal Marriage. In our conversation, she discussed the fervency of her prayer for her unsaved husband as she documents in the book Marching Around Jericho, Praying Your Unsaved Spouse into the Kingdom. Here now is Lynn Donovan. I met my husband in a bar in Las Vegas. Yeah, not not a good way to get started. I was in prodigal years. I grew up in the church. Mm. I really feel like I had a relationship more with church than the upward relationship with the Trinity. And so for a few years, I was just in the prodigal badlands, living fast and furious. That's when I met my husband. And we married and kind of lived a very worldly life. And three years into it, it just was shallow and unhappy. And I I said, what's going on here? And I ran home to my father as the prodigal daughter with his arms wide open and welcoming me back. And it was glorious. But I was dragging with me my unsaved spouse. And that's when I really learned I am unequally yoked and I need to figure this out. 
share with us about the circumstances or what God was doing in your heart that really motivated you to, as we might say, take things to another level. And that's what this this march around Jericho is all about. So how did right. that come to be? Yeah, um, I just remember sitting in church one morning reading the book about a miracle. And I was like, God, where are the miracles? I'm not seeing this. And I had such a hunger Lord, I am going to keep asking. I am going to come up to heaven and knock on the door. If that's what it takes, I want to understand Jesus, the miracle worker. And he answered me. And I had uh, just a powerful encounter with the Lord one day in worship. It just set me on this path of really understanding things I didn't know about my own faith. Like, what is real intimacy with the Father? I had to work that out. What does it mean to be a child of God? I, I had a false identity that I was living in. What does it mean to have the authority of Christ? And how do we understand? You know, I didn't know our enemy. I didn't understand any of that. Um, and, you know, how do you cooperate with the Holy Spirit to release power into your marriage and power into your prayers? So I really went on quite a journey after that encounter. And I think it was my hunger. I just want to know you, Lord. I want to know you. I want to know more about you. And so I spent the next seven years kind of going in this circle. The first year was learning about intimacy with the Father, and I had to tear down a lot of lies and distrust and learn that God is really good, and He loves us all the time, and He has good for us every day. And then after that, learning who I was and, you know, gaining my true identity as a child and what God says my life is for, my purpose and my identity was reestablished in Christ. And anyway, it was quite a journey. And I feel like I marched around. Each year was a new lesson that I marched around. And it just took me on this path that just after a while walking it, it results in what I call the spouse effect. When you're going through all of this with the Lord and understanding who you are and whose you are and the power and the authority in Christ, it starts to affect your spouse. They cannot help but be affected by a woman or a man who is their husband or wife that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, madly in love with Jesus, serving the Father with all of their heart. It just affects them and they start to change. They start to see your change and it changes your whole atmosphere of your home. At the conclusion of this seven-year period of time, something really amazing happened. So tell us about that, if you would. Within a number of weeks, God started to orchestrate events that came about in his life. Mike and I came to um, the church, and when he was baptized by a pastor he had known from our church from years ago, and it was the most amazing, glorious experience to see this man join the kingdom of God, and say out loud, you know, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. It's very humbling, and it had nothing to do with me other than I prayed. It is by God's love and Jesus Christ that that man is now walking in the kingdom and became a believer. And, Bob, what is so cool, God loves us so much. I've been in this ministry a long time, and he says, I'm going to give you a gift, and Mike will be baptized on your wedding anniversary. Wow. And so, on, yeah, on March 14th, we went into the church, and I watched my husband become baptized and join the kingdom of God. It was amazing. God is that good. And that was March the 14th? That was last year, 2019? 
That's correct, yeah. Lynn Donovan here on The Intersection. You can find out more at marchingaroundjericho.com. Well, Mark Little is board chair for Urban Cure. That is an acronym for Center for Urban Renewal and Education. In our recent conversation, he shared perspective on the death of George Floyd and the aftermath, as well as biblical insight on race relations. From that conversation, this is Mark Little now. The body of Christ needs to know what is really happening in the culture with respect to government intersecting with, 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 with faith. Uh, so we need to understand, if we don't stand up as a church, uh, we'll have churches closed while Walmart is open. That should mean something mm. uh, within the body. We have to understand that Christianity is under attack, and we can't be afraid to say so. And we can't be afraid to stand up and say, I have a right under the First Amendment, under the United States Constitution, and I'm not going to roll over and watch you take it from me. As leaders, we have to inform our people. I formed a political action uh, committee uh, at the church that I was running for 16 years down in Inglewood, California, because I understood that the people needed to be informed, and the senior leader isn't always comfortable doing that. So let's just tell the truth and shame the devil. We have to be informed first and foremost. Otherwise, we're simply frogs boiling in the pot of water. You know the metaphor. Uh, the mm -hmm. water gets turned up mm -hmm. just a little bit at a time, and before the frog knows it, he's been cooked and didn't even know it. That's what's happening right now. So that's number one. We need to be informed, and we need to tell the truth. Secondly, we need to understand and find out what is, what is our calling. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5 gives us our identity. I love when Jesus comes down from, uh, from giving the Beatitudes, and he, be, and he says to us, he says to us, you are the salt and the light. You are salt and you are light. We have to understand and ask ourselves, what does it look like in this season to be salty? We already know we're salt. What is our calling that says that we are going to be salty? What does that look like? What does it look like? We're already light, but what does our calling say shining looks like. We're salt and light, but we have to be salty and we have to be shiny. What does that look like? Every church will be different. Some churches will peacefully uh, uh, march uh, in their community uh, and pray. They'll do prayer walks. Some churches will dispatch uh, their, their, their youth, their, their college students into government offices to be interns. We have to infiltrate uh, government. We have to, there are seven mountains. Uh, either the devil's going to uh, uh, control them, or the people of God will control them. You know, when people say that the church has no business in government, I, I scratch my head all the time. Government was instituted by God. What are you talking about? We've got no business in government. And so we have to we have to determine uh, what is He calling us to and then walk in that calling boldly. And then finally, let me say, the foundation of all of this is, is critically important. If we're not leading in our homes and our families as men, uh, first and foremost, and then as moms and wives, if we're, if we're not doing the basics, if we're not praying together at home and doing Luke 10 and 27 at home, then we're hypocrites to try to do it outside of our home. 
We have to get our homes in order. And then fourth and finally, let me say this, because we're speaking in a time uh, where, where we're talking about race and we're, and we're, 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 we're apologizing and, and we're doing all these things now. It, 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 I want to be really clear. Racism exists, but racism is a condition of the heart. Racism is sin. God hates sin. And so we have to look both internally at our own biases, pray against those things. Lord, shine a light on me and show me if there is any way in me that needs to be corrected, right? And then we can go out of our own homes and then begin to shine the light and begin to be salty uh, as the word is calling us to be. And so I hope those four things uh, help us in some small way. I don't believe it's complicated. I believe that God can change a heart, but he can use us as we, as we walk out our faith one to another. He can use us to change our heart. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. Uh, it's not our job to change someone else. It's our job to be salty and light and, and shine. Mark Little here on The Intersection. The Urban Cure website is urbancure.org. You can find him on Twitter at Prodigal Repub. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast and the Meeting House program. The podcast can be found in the Media Center. You can also subscribe through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible through the Meeting House homepage. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. That website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from the Meeting House program can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. The Director of Government Affairs for the American Center for Law and Justice, Than Bennett, visited with me recently and discussed principles that he relates in his book, My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God. From that conversation, this is Than Bennett now. The plans for marketing a book were disrupted when it came out on March 10th, and that was sort of the week that everything was shutting down. But look, I think there was a a divine plan here as well, because I think we are at a moment where uh, God wants to move in our world in a tangible way, but he, he needs his people. He needs you and me. He needs the church to wake up to the reality that the way he's designed it is for us to be his tangible presence in the world. And um, I, I just think about the, the very tangible commands that are throughout Scripture, just, just to give you a couple of them. We're supposed to love our neighbor, and, and God's love has, has, wants to meet our neighbor. Well, our neighbor's not loved, Bob, until we show them that love. His love reaches them through us. And you think about the command to visit the prisoner. God wants to reach the prisoner with his presence. Well, the, his presence typically doesn't reach that prisoner until we actually visit them. And He's designed it that way, Bob, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it's because, yes, he wants a relationship with those he's trying to reach, but he also wants a relationship with us, his people. He wants us to come to him and have that personal interaction with him. 
And if I might, just to be very practical in this moment that we find ourselves, you, you mentioned racial justice and uh, racial inequality. I have been uh, really, um, uh, the verse in, in Proverbs 24, Proverbs 24, 10 through 12 has been sitting in my soul as I've, as I've won, weighed my role in this divide in our culture. And it says, uh, if you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? And just very briefly, I would tell you there's a lot of noise around this. There are a lot of people trying to co-opt what's happening for their own political narrative or their own agenda. But, uh, Bob, I think there's a, a very clear divide in our culture, and I think as we as followers of Jesus Christ really need to focus in there. How can we bridge that divide with our brother or sister? Let's set the politics aside for a minute, and let's engage with our fellow image bearers and bring about reconciliation on that level. That's really far more important. In the title of the book, there are actually two different types of fame that are mentioned. There is the fame of God, and and God has called us to make him known. There's also the element of our own fame. In other words, how God might give us influence in order to impact the culture. Let's talk about what culture would look like when God is being made famous. Yeah, that juxtaposition really was intentional, Bob, because I think we, as as followers of Jesus, need a redefinition of fame. I really do. You know, there is a unmistakable obsession with fame in our world today, and it's one, as you noted, that's wrapped in platforms and visibility and notoriety. Um, and I think it's maybe best embodied by a quote I use in the book from Madonna, one of the most famous people on the planet. And she said she won't be happy until she's famous like God. And it just goes to show that that pursuit of fame, that kind of fame really has no end. Uh, but as I, as I investigated this, this story, and, and you know, Habakkuk uses this word fame as to, to, to be what he is proclaiming, what he is calling out, and I found it to be a two-edged sword for, for followers of Jesus, because we know we're not supposed to pursue that type of fame that Madonna's are talking about. We know that that will destroy us, but I actually find that the Bible points to a conclusion that we're naturally drawn to the other kind of fame, Bob, specifically because we were created for it. We were hardwired for it. And we are going to have to realize that when, when, when God called Abraham to a certain type of fame, when he said he would be a great nation, and he told Joshua that his fame would spread through the land, and then he called Habakkuk to make this mighty proclamation of God's fame, he was really talking about the very purpose for which he made us. He made us to be vessels that were capable of acquiring fame, of channeling fame, and then carrying that fame to the world. But our culture, we have turned that on our heads. We've, we've made it about personal fame when we really just meant to be vessels of the almighty fame. And I'll just leave you with one, one verse. It's Isaiah 43, 21, where God tells Isaiah very specifically why he made us and what our job is. He says, the people I formed for myself, we were made for him, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Bob, I think it's time mm -hmm. for us to reverse the definition of fame that we've had for so long. Than Bennett here on The Intersection. You can find him online at than, T-H-A-N-N, Bennett.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's the author of the book, Afraid of the Light, Cynthia Rook T., discussing the topic of the novel, which is hoarding. 
In our conversation, she shared some of her research about the practice and explored possible spiritual root causes. Here now from that conversation is Cynthia Rookti. I've discovered, yes, that certainly that fear, certainly that the Bible is very strong about preparing for the future, about not wasting what we have, about making sure we have enough so we can be generous, that, that that's all over the Bible. And, but a hoarder is not generous in the typical way either. They hoard and keep. Sometimes we Christians can be accused, could be accused of hoarding good news too, that we are very happy and content with knowing of the freedoms that we have and the joy and the peace, but we're hesitant to share that and resistant sometimes to share that broadly and, and generously. I, I was thinking about my husband in this regard with all his scavenging and everything, and then there was a day I found in the book of Proverbs some verse that said something about the wise man sets aside whatever he finds for the future, and I thought, oh no, now he has biblical support for his scavenging <laughs> all these items. But but so we know that that part of it, the the idea of being prepared, even what what Joseph went through in setting aside a portion of the grain for all those years because there was a famine ahead that he didn't even know about, or that the, the world around him did not know about that was coming. He was saving out of obedience to the Lord in that realm. But he was saving from a, an emotional and a spiritual position of strength. He was in a good place with God, one might say. And oftentimes the, the, the fear for a hoarder or the, um, the mistrust that God will protect and take care of them or they hanging on to a deep grief, and here's where the non-biblical part comes in. They hang on to a deep grief, and they're not willing to let God in. They're even keeping Him at arm's length and not letting Him into their grief or their sorrow or their loss or their lack. And that could be said of any of us. If we refuse to, if we feed, act as if we're afraid of the light, and we try to hide and keep our hurt or our pain inside of us, that's when we're um, going against what God would want us to do. And He is indeed the only one that can come in with the answers that we need. When our hearts are broken, or when we've been gravely disappointed, or when there's been a, a trauma to us that causes the mental disconnect, to make us see things of value that have no value. You have a main character who is a clinical psychologist, Dr. Camille Brooks, who is a mental health professional who deals with this whole topic of hoarding. She also hosts a podcast called Let In the Light. So set this up. What did you want to bring to this main character as you developed her characteristics? She came from, Camille came from a household that set her up to want to make a difference. Her mother was a hoarder, and she couldn't make a difference in her mother's life. That The reader will find that out pretty early in the story, and that really spurs Camille on to want to make a difference in other people's lives. She 
tried everything she could, but she was a child at the time. She left home quite early because she could not live in that kind of environment. She felt in her heart, and there may be even some listeners now who have felt that their parents have chosen something else above them. Sometimes it's that a parent will choose um, a an affection that seems like they're choosing that affection above their child, or in the case of hoarders, the children often believe that the parent is choosing their things above love for the child, and it's far more complex and complicated than that. It's what it feels like, but it's it's much more much more um, tangled than that than it would make it seem. Because any hoarder would say, "No, no, no! Of course, I love you more than I love these things." But when it comes time to giving them up, that's where the difficulty comes in, just as it is with a drug addiction or or some other kind of addiction like that, too. There are so many similarities there. Cynthia Rook T here on The Intersection. You can find her online at Cynthia Rook T, that is R-U-C-H-T-I dot com. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, you can access the Media Center, where you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can find the podcast in the Media Center. It's also available through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. The other is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Content can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.